Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. On December 18th of last year, the rapper Draco the Ruler was murdered. It happened backstage at a festival in Los Angeles, his hometown. A group of dozens of people, maybe as many as 75 or 100, ambushed Draco. One of those people slit his throat. Draco was a young, rising rapper. Critics respected him. Rap fans streamed his music millions of times. He was a Los Angeles gangster rapper whose music didn't sound like what you'd think of when you hear Los Angeles gangster rap. It's subdued and anxious, less about the barbecue with your pals, more about looking over your shoulder, double-checking on the footsteps behind you. Music writer Jeff Weiss first covered Draco the Ruler about five years ago. He met him at the L.A. Men's Central Jail downtown, where Draco was being held on a gun charge. Weiss and Draco forged a close relationship over the years. Under Weiss's byline, Draco appeared in L.A. Weekly, the L.A. Times, The Ringer, and more. Weiss was also with Draco when the rapper was murdered. Draco is exactly the kind of guest I'd love to have on my show. A funny, fascinating MC with a compelling story and a healthy appreciation for the work of one of my favorite rappers, Sugar Free. In fact, we tried to book and we hadn't ever made it happen, and it won't happen now. The people who murdered Draco are still at large. So I invited Weiss to our studio in Los Angeles to talk with me about Draco's music, what that music meant to the broader hip hop community and about Draco's life and death. As a warning, there is uh, some discussion about violence and crime, so if that is a sensitive subject for you, we, we wanted to let you know. Anyway, with all that out of the way, here's my conversation with Jeff Weiss about Draco the Ruler. Jeff Weiss, thanks for coming on Bullseye. It's nice to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Before we talk about the circumstances of his life, let's talk for a minute about Draco's music. What was distinctive about him as a rapper? So Draco invented a style of music that he coined himself called nervous music, which he described as driving around South Central in a $100,000 car while people are trying to kill you. It's anxiety riddled. It's sort of the way I described it is when Snoop came along, he kind of liberated the West Coast from kind of the strictures of the East Coast, having to kind of panther all because you have an album like NWA and you can still hear like straight out of Compton's East Coast influence. Snoop comes along kind of is this rupture from the past. Draco did the same thing, I would say, to the West Coast, but to itself. So Draco comes in, all of a sudden, the khakis, the palm trees, you know, driving around in an old school Chevy, that's out the window. It had already been going out. And then you had ratchet music that comes in, which was the most popular music right before Draco comes in, again, goes out of vogue. He made it so it almost the kind of flexing that kind of more endemic in uh, like Southern music, you know, ride around like really expensive clothes, really expensive car. You know, Draco would always just, you know, have like a ton of braggadocio about, you know, the biggest guns. But then also it was a lot deeper than that because, you know, it's not it wasn't just about his boasting. He had this really esoteric sense of humor, like it almost was like doom, like they're the, the, the rapper is most likely to be like zoinks. 
or like Jeepers Creepers or some kind of weird 1940s cartoon slang. Like on his one of his last albums, he had a song called Pow, right in the kisser, like from the Honeymooners, which and like I'd ask Drake whenever I would talk to him, I'd be like, how do you know that? And he'd be like, I don't know, I just know it. I'm going to shoot the can to the cops come. Pow, right in the kisser. We did him like that because he's a spot burner. Pow, right in the kisser. With the stick with the drum, who won't run with me? Pow, right in the kisser. Stupid shells dumping out the chop, it's a hundredy. Pow, right in the kisser. I'ma pull it out the Louis. He also created his own slang. So, the extended clip on a semi automatic rifle, he would call it like a pippy long stocking or like a shenane from the character from Martin. Uh, you know, flu flaming. I'll never forget when he told me what flu flamming, how he came up with it. Basically, so if you don't know, flu flamming was Draco slang for breaking and entering, robbing houses, kind of ransacking a house. And I was like, how did you come up with flu flamming? And he's like, basically, he was in jail and he was talking to some guy who was talking about how his, you know, he'd run through houses and he'd be like, flu flam, flu flam. And he'd be, that was the sound of the drawers kind of being pulled out and slammed back in. And uh, so Draco came up with flu flamming describe that so it really was kind of a thing also in, his cadences were very different he was almost was like scraping kind of counterclockwise against the beat so it really was a almost a total revolution in sound which has been subsequently copied by rappers all over the west coast and all over the country one of the things that is most distinctive to my ear about draco is not even the you know kind of clever wordplay and, and making up words and neologisms, that kind of thing. It's just the aesthetic of his flow, like just the way his voice relates to the beat. And, you know, there have long been, there's a long history of rappers who are talking as much as they're rapping. But what's interesting to me about Draco is it has that feeling. It feels like he's talking as much as he's rapping but there's actually a pretty intricate relationship. Like he never kind of falls out of the pocket. You know what I mean? Like he never, yeah. he never loses track. When I first heard him, I, I remember asking him the first time I met him, I was like, have you ever listened to sugar free? Because he doesn't rap like sugar free, but it almost was the same thing where it's like, you know where the beat is and you're keeping it in the back of your mind the whole time, but you're kind of disregarding it. You'll, you'll meet up at the right place. Sugar free is a, a rapper from Pomona, California yeah. here in Southern California. Who's, you know, a generation before from, he sort of came out in the mid nineties. Yeah. Kind of the Southern California answer to E40 yeah. in, in a lot, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I dr- keep my nails done. I speak well. I'm watching my cholesterol live totally. by a body of water and I enjoy drinking alcohol. It's <laughs> one that I think about a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Just immaculate <laughs> linen suits and, yeah. and permed hair. Yeah, no, and Draco, the, well, the thing that's also interesting about his flow, too, is obviously mumble rap was used, uh, I think, wrongly as a pejorative against a lot of rappers from the South, like Young Thug or, or the Migos. But Draco was actually doing mumble rap in a good way, I think. You know, sometimes it, he was slurring, you know, he, he drank a lot of lean, so sometimes it would get a little... It, his voice would sound muddy, though, which was kind of cool, right? Because he's rapping about... You know, he, he called himself Mr. Mosley, which was his slang for lean, and he'd always been talking about how he was mud-walking through Neiman Marcus. Uh, but I, I think the, one of the things that I, I loved about it was he almost had such like disdain for like the listener. Like it was like, Oh, you're so you're lucky to be listening to this. And, you know, and uh, you know, we're like, obviously deep into the 21st century. It, it, it's so rare when you hear someone that like, it's almost like when uh, like Athena pops out of Zeus's stomach or one of the, I, I'm probably mangling that, that <laughs> mythological comparison, but it was just like one of those things that popped out fully formed, which you don't really see anymore. So you mentioned ratchet music, which was sort of the 
predominant kind of uh, hip hop mode in LA when Draco was first getting started. Yeah. What does that mean and what is different about what Draco was doing? So Ratchet w- was basically just kind of house party function music. Like Tiger's Rack City. All the girls love me, you know what it is. Rack City Chick, Rack Rack City Chick, Rack City Chick, Rack Rack City Chick, Rack City Chick, Rack Rack City Chick, TNT. I think it's the archetypal Ratchet song. It was mostly produced by DJ Mustard, who actually was the producer that first kind of put Draco onto a larger audience. So there is that kind of crossover there. Uh, Joe Moses was a rapper. He had a song called Do It for the Ratchets. Uh, you know, just really kind of upbeat kind of almost i think of it almost as fluorescent in my head in terms of like a color scheme it but but lighthearted um obviously there was kind of a menacing undertone but it it was mostly just kind of you know just music to just drink and smoke weed too and kind of have a good time at a, at a party and dj mustard who was the you know producer and impresario behind uh, a lot of ratchet music made a a remix of a song that Draco had out that was sort of, you know, getting a little bit of underground attention. What was it that that Mustard saw in there or heard in there? The song was called Mr. Get Doe. And uh, when Draco grew up, it was really a period where West Coast rap was basically pretty moribund. You know, you had the game and that was about it. There were not really any nationally recognizable LA artists from the game basically up until YG and Nipsey Hussle, more or less. I mean, I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody, but that was basically it. And uh, Draco is kind of honing his style. And then his brother, who's also a really gifted rapper in his own right, Ralphie the Plug, kind of tells Draco, oh, you should start rapping over kind of these beats, kind of take these these ratchet, these party beats, and kind of you know make them a little slower, sinister, um, almost like... It reminded me of almost like a West Coast analog of what Mob Deep did, which kind of this dark, ominous kind of music and and draco's music i think really fits really well into the la sunshine noir like dialectic that's always dominated discussion of the city but draco basically is kind of doing these youtube and soundcloud freestyles and uh mr get doe kind of hits up on a style it's it's a beat that sounds like dj mustard could have produced it but it, it, there is i mean if you're really digging deep there's almost it's almost the moment where like there is this rupture between ratchet music to become what draco calls nervous music and the name of his first mixtape was actually called nervous music and uh, Draco had a song with uh, his late friend, Ketchy the Great, uh, who died last year in kind of murky circumstances, a really great rapper in his own right. And Draco does the song, uh, and it was actually through YG's brother, who had some acquaintance with Draco, and he passed it on to DJ Mustard. And then DJ Mustard did basically, I, I'm, I'm using an air quote in, in, the, in the booth, but he, he remixed it. It's the same beat, but he basically put on uh, this rapper named RJ, who was his uh, one of his artists at the time, and another rapper named Choice, who was kind of more an undistinguished rapper. So yes, I had to bring a box. Stanley's out, you know they had to bring the cops. We going high speed chases. Couldn't get me if I'm got, but I'm not. Pops on my knots. Mr. Get Guap. That's Mr. Get Doe, aka Mr. Mose. Walking up the house with a stove. Lingo, bingo. Call me Mr. Get Doe. Mr. Get Doe. And uh, they, they shoot a video with it, and it's from this video where Draco kind of like ascends to this regional stardom, and um, and that kind of just kind of anoints him. And and if you watch it from the first bars, now when I'm going back, you're like you hear it, and you're like, oh, this is just something completely different. He's a star, and he immediately kind of develops a fan base in basically south of the 10 freeway in Los Angeles. 
What was the first Drago song that you heard? The first Drago song that I heard probably was Mr. Get Down, honestly. Um, I, it was interesting because when you listen to Draco, I think a lot of people now it's maybe there it's be kind of filtered more into the bloodstream of the sound of of West Coast music. And but at first it was when I heard it, I was like, yeah, this is cool, but I don't know if it wasn't like a matter of not getting it, but I didn't quite understand how much I would love it. But the song that really where I was like, I actually think this is maybe the best rapper alive right now uh, was the Impatient Freestyle, which um, he's rapping over uh, Jeremiah's Impatient, uh, Jeremiah being a really amazing uh, R&B singer from Chicago. But the beat, I, I don't know if they did anything to the beat, but but it sounds slower and, and, and again, just darker. What's the deal though? Wanna rip this thing team while hop out and kill some rolly on my wrist came from long nights of hard thugging. The acronym is F and N. I ain't really with that bar tussling. No forget the studio. I'm really in the yard thugging. Pull up on Naomi, fit the guineas in the yard. Touching we all got Javinci in my pocket. It's about 50. So again, talking about that Rami, buddy. This is so silly in the field. Rap ain't paying no bills. This is the song that really makes Draco a star. It also um, dovetails with him basically going to jail right afterwards. And he's rapping in a parking lot with his eyes closed holding a semi-automatic and it's just like this breathless like two and a half minute freestyle over this beat and it's he's one of those artists right where it's like the best artists are often like it's hard to kind of describe what what makes it so good i've been thinking about why the impatient freestyle is so good because i was thinking about writing something about it it's really difficult to describe it but it's it's like one of those things that what makes music good and you're like i don't quite know it's the pacing it's the vocal tone it's the slang the nonchalance the bravado that it is it, it everything and that was sort of the song that um really kind of breaks draco up along the west coast we've got more to get into with jeff weiss after a quick break we'll be back in a minute it's bullseye from maximumfun.org and npr Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the writer Jeff Weiss. He's covered music for the Los Angeles Times, Pitchfork, the Washington Post, and many more. He wrote extensively about the late rapper Draco the Ruler. Draco was stabbed to death last year while backstage at the Once Upon a Time in LA Festival in Los Angeles. Jeff was with him. Let's get back into my conversation about Draco's life and work with Jeff Weiss. Let's talk a little bit about the circumstances of Draco's life. When you first got involved in writing about Draco, and you've probably written about him more than anyone else, he was involved in a very complicated court case and criminal investigation that ended up sending him to jail. What were the circumstances that sent him to court and, and eventually to jail? Yeah. So in the summer of 2016, Draco is basically becoming the biggest rapper in Los Angeles. And Draco was a really, really kind, caring, generous person, a really loyal, good friend. But like he was either your best friend or your worst enemy. And he was really obsessed with authenticity. He was obsessed with honesty. And if he felt that someone didn't like comport to these standards that very few people, to be fair, can live up to, then he would kind of be dismissive of them. And um you know, he, he he kept a small circle. And basically, there were these, you know, a bunch of people that he'd collaborated with kind of, it went sour, starting with Mustard. You know, according, again, this is what just what Draco told me. Uh, he tried to sign him. Draco felt it was an unfair offer. And then Mustard was like, basically, like, if you don't sign to me, 
I'm not going to keep working with you, which, you know, is a pretty common thing. And, you know, like it, it, it made sense, you know, not Mustard's fault, but I don't think it ended that well. So basically, Draco starts to make a lot of enemies. Uh, he, it should be stressed that Draco uh, did not gangbang, which is a complete anomaly for a street rapper from Los Angeles. Draco was rapping about the things that a lot of uh, Los Angeles gangster rappers have historically rapped about, which are, you know, uh, in the words of Warren Zevon, lawyers, guns, and money. And this originality kind of rubs people the wrong way, too, because, you know, Draco was kind of doing things effortlessly in a way. He's not this studious Kendrick Lamar rapper, like in the cypher, like trying to be the greatest rapper of all time. He just is getting money and rapping about burglary and all these different things, but in a way that no one had seen. So he becomes a target because he's not in a gang. And, uh, you know, he grew so up. Let's yeah. let's clarify what that means, because yeah, sure. I think that is a really big deal about yeah. where he's positioned in the. Yeah you know, the landscape of Los Angeles. So a lot of rappers, almost all rappers in Los Angeles have gang affiliations the, based the on popular ones. Yeah. The radio, most of the radio ones. Yeah. And it's, it's based, based on, on where they grew up. It's based on where they grew up. Or, and it's, sometimes it's where your grandmother grew up or your, your grandmother's house was, or sometimes it's family. Sometimes a rapper will be, he'll claim a different hood because, you know, he'd go over to his cousin's house and that was where he'd hang out at the park. And like, you know, I describe it as like in, in the article I wrote for LA Magazine, it's sort of like like the Balkans. It's really difficult to understand. Like there are so many gangs in LA that the average person doesn't know that I certainly don't know. And there are these like Hatfield versus McCoy feuds that have been going on for now generations. And so basically Draco grew up in several different parts of South Central LA. Uh, there were two really, I was a uh, 32nd to Naomi, which is a territory historically controlled by the Rolling thirties gang. And then there's a neighborhood called the hundreds, which is uh, technically called Westmont. It's an un- unincorporated part of LA County. It, when Draco was growing up, it had the highest murder rate in LA County. And it also had the highest unemployment rate. There was a part of it, a little corridor that they called murder alley. And he's growing up there. And it, it's like a territory where there's Latino gangs. And then there's also the Hoover criminals which were a former crip sect that split off like in the early 2000s and then became their own thing and they can go to war with other crips or bloods and they historically did not like the rolling hundreds set which draco had a lot of friends in so he doesn't join the crips which would have been the natural but he's but he's friends with them and uh but he at first you know he's friends with a lot of bloods and he's friends with a lot of bloods from inglewood and uh, so he really is working with with all these people he's not trying to be he's not on some super gangbang at all not trying to necessarily start feuds with anybody and that was my read on him he never never struck me as the kind of person that would start a feud but he certainly wasn't the kind of person that would walk away from one he's also not a joiner no no it was very much like the groucho marks like i'd never belonged to any club that would have me type thing so what were the accusations against him well at first they didn't slap the murder charges on him they raided his house and they found these guns so they locked him up for nine months he got out of jail you know, I, I interviewed him for the LA Times, this big front page story. Before the story comes out, he gets arrested. Uh, basically, the Metropolitan Division, who are of the LAPD, they were known as the air quote elite division, also were known for basically an effective stop and frisk by stopping young black and brown males in the streets of LA. So they, they basically were following Draco, what Draco believed they were following him. And he goes into a smoke shop. He's trying to buy a pack of cigarettes. The cops are outside about to, you know... He throws his weapon. They basically find a gun in him. They send him back to jail. When he goes to jail, um, they wait until my article comes out, and then they slap uh, murder charges on him uh, for everything from first-degree murder, um, shooting from a motor vehicle, gang conspiracy laws, uh, attempted murder because two other people were shot and, and healed, 
I think there was like 12 charges in all. And all of the members of his rap crew are incarcerated and they put uh, wired informants in their cells trying to get them to figure out, you know, who, who was the shooter. And uh, it ends up basically one of the, the juvenile who was uh, like a loose hanger on in Draco's entourage tells this this jailhouse snitch that he shot at the guy who ended up dying and one of Draco's childhood friends, like, you know, he'd been friends with him since he was 10 years old uh, and who's also rapping along with him in, in his rap crew. Basically, in the course of these Perkins uh, interviews, they found out allegedly who the shooters were. And then like the cops start trying to figure out, well, okay, well, how can we get Draco for it? Because he didn't shoot. And then it becomes this really like tangled labyrinthing thing where they're trying to get him on conspiracy, but they basically concoct this story, which they end up using at trial that Draco had been beefing with a rapper named RJ, where if you're still following, he was on the Mr. Get Doe song. He was Mustard's protege. They, they were saying that because Draco had a beef with him, they had gone to this party where RJ was not on the flyer for the party. He never said he was going to be at the party uh, and, and actually admitted he wasn't going to be at the party in, in later interviews to kill RJ. But since RJ wasn't there, Draco was then somehow responsible for all violence committed that night. And uh, yeah, that was their theory, which doesn't really make very much sense. And uh, yeah. I mean, there are a couple of sort of significant symbolic things in this case. One is that the prosecution and to a certain extent, the police are trying to use his music yeah. as a weapon. And, and his videos. Yeah, they would they would constantly show his videos. The other is that he is essentially being prosecuted for crimes that were allegedly committed by somebody he knew. Yeah. And, you know, there is a long history in, especially New York and California, of laws that try and extend the criminal responsibility for a crime uh, from the person who committed the crime to people who are affiliated with them yeah. in some way. And usually they they use the word gang, but that word is a word that can be very broadly interpreted. Yeah. Um, they and would, is obviously very loaded as well. Yeah, they would use DMs where they'd be like gang, which is like slang, you know, like people just say like- Like my buddies. Yeah, like TikTok kids, like we'll right. say ganging them. Like it's yeah. not at this point, or like slide, they would, one of, that was one of the words that they would try to kind of criminalize. You know, there'd be all these DMs because they were able to hack into Draco and his friends' DMs. And they'd be like, you have to come and slide for me. And you're like, yeah, well, slide can mean shoot to kill somebody. It also can mean like come slide to the party or like just you have to be there. It can it, obviously language is rich. I mean, you look up a word in the dictionary. There's usually not one definition. There's usually four. And uh, but after Draco gets acquitted of all these charges, there are two charges that hang. One is 10 to in his favor uh, shooting from a motor vehicle. And then there's a charge called 182.5 California Penal Code 182.5. And this law is it's a gang conspiracy law that holds that if you're in this gang, which they're saying was his rap group, anything that anyone does for the benefit of the gang, they can charge the other gang members. So they were holding that because Draco is promoting the stink team, which was his crew in his music. Therefore he's responsible for a murder that would occur from one of the other stink team members. It's it's like, I, I described it as like, it's like the secret, like you wish that it can be. And then it is. And Basically, this one was a seven to five in Draco's favor. So then they refile most of these cases. Meanwhile, Draco's in solitary confinement. They put him in this K-19 and uh, 
they forced him to cop a deal basically to the shooting from a motor vehicle charge. So he did have to, you know, plead guilty to it, which he was infuriated about. But he, you know, when faced with the possibility of, okay, you're gonna have to face a second trial and you're gonna have to spend all this money for a second trial. And, you know, I think he would have won, but it's never a guarantee. I mean, it, it could have ended poorly for him. And he took this deal and was uh, freed the day after uh, George Gascon won the election, which was no coincidence. So when Draco got out, he was a star, um, at least in Los Angeles. You had had a relationship with him that was based on like you talking to him on the phone from jail as a, as a journalist writing about his case. And the two of you ended up becoming friends. You know, you've been a hip hop journalist for a long time. And, you know, this isn't quite as incongruous a pairing as people might imagine it is uh, from, you know, hearing yeah. you talking on the show right now. But it is a little bit of an incongruous pairing. So were you surprised that this guy that, you know, you had known as a musician and as a subject actually started being a part of your life as a, you know, as a buddy? For For sure. I mean, he was really quirky. You know, he was like very just an idiosyncratic guy, you know, he, you know, he was, he named himself after, uh, Draco, the tyrant from ancient Athens, you know, he, he was, I would go off the source of the word draconian. Totally. Yeah. Who was killed. And he thought it was the funniest thing that he was killed to death by hats and robes thrown on him in a sign of display of praise. He thought that was the funniest thing. One of the great tragedies of his loss. I mean, there's a lot of great tragedies of his loss, but I, I really think that he, he was only just kind of becoming to come into his own as a person. Like, and like he was, I think really starting to kind of become more comfortable about like sharing these different sides of his personality that he really had, you know, cause he had to grow up in this kind of tough environment to survive and kind of make himself, you know, he forged this identity for himself, but he really also had this like sensitive artistic side that I think, you know, he was a real artist, you know, and that, that was the other thing too. It's like, he, might've been rapping about, Oh, I'm doing it for the money and this. And like, maybe he didn't start rapping necessarily on some like pretentious, I'm going to be an artist thing, but, but he really deep down was obsessed with his artist. You know, he'd send me like, he'd send me texts all the time. Like, what do you think of this song? You know, what about this version and this version? He was really meticulous about it. And he thought really deeply about it. And he wasn't quite always the most talkative person, but he would uh, always listen. And sometimes, you know, I'd be like going off on a rant about his case and he would just file it away. And then like the next day, I would see it in his own, refracted in his own way on his Twitter feed. And people would be like, are you writing Draco's Twitter feed? And I'm like, no. He just is like, he memori- he memorizes everything. You know, he was really obsessed with his case. He would read all of his things about his case. You know, I'd send him a lot of books. He was constantly writing, you know, really like a lot of people go to jail, I think. And like they, um, historically, that kind of inspiration dries up. But he was full of life. He'd, he'd always call me and be like, listen to what I just reported. And he'd like just wrote and he would just like start freestyling over the phone. And he he really loved that, I think, idea of creation. And I definitely, you know, we had talked about, you know, doing a TV show and a documentary and we shot some stuff beforehand before he passed. And he was really like just a very creative person. Let's talk about the circumstances of his death. And, you know, anything that you're not comfortable talking about, feel free to just say. Yeah. 
you know, you're here because you're probably the critic who's written the most about Draco, but also because he is your friend and he was killed. He was killed backstage at a show. This was a huge festival that was, you know, billed as having as having been put together by Snoop Dogg. Yeah. That featured, you know, everybody from Al Green to Snoop Dogg. No, it's, the, it's the, probably the best lineup that anyone has ever booked ever. I, the I couldn't, Brothers, when, I, yeah. when I saw it, I couldn't believe it was real. Yeah. I was like, it's like a, it was like a fantasy fever dream of like everyone you ever heard on the radio in California. Like, you know, everything like Baby Bash or like, you know, all the young street rappers were there. The Isley Brothers, Al Green, George Clinton and Funkadelic were playing. I mean, 50 Cent, uh, you know, it, it, you name it. It was an insane lineup. So... What was it like backstage? What was the place and, you know, what was the scene? What, what was going on back there? So I'd been there since about like four or five, right? So I, I was going back and forth between the backstage and seeing shows. Honestly, up until the incident happened, it was like, you know, I was talking to random, you know, DJs back there, a couple of musicians. It was really like a laid back, calm vibe, not that crowded. It was crowded outside, but it wasn't that crowded in the artist area, the VIP. And, um, Draco did not want to show up because like, you know, there had been this, these threats of violence that were like hanging over his head. And, um, the thing about this festival was, I mean, yeah, I mean, the security was very lax, which, you know, you didn't, I didn't think anything. I mean, like sometimes security can be like really crazy and then, you know, you're like, what, what's wrong with it. But I'd been told by other people that it's pretty easy to get into the backstage artist area, even without a band. Uh, I had one. And, uh, then basically Draco was calling at 8 30. Uh he shows up or at like 8 30 on the on the dime, right? So I'm with uh like his friend uh Jug, a couple people, and you know, it's just having a good time, you know, like just laughing and like someone's like, oh Draco. So we go to meet Draco and his brother Ralphie and a few of their other friends. And it should be noted that um the from what I was told later they were allowed a very limited guest list. There were only like I think 15 people they said were allowed. And uh, so Draco's allowed this very small group. They they allegedly uh, stripped his bodyguard of weapons. And we go to meet them. And, you know, it's just, it's it's like a massive parking lot. It, it's being held like in the shadows of the Coliseum. It's, it's the Bank of California Stadium, Exposition Park. And the parking lot is sort of, there's just tons of cars. Basically, they'd let, car, they, the artists would come in off Martin Luther King Boulevard. They'd pull into this huge parking lot. And, um, cause obviously they weren't going to walk through the crowd and Draco had come in and it was like, you know, $300,000 Rolls Royce on. And, you know, basically what happens is from the side, someone yells something at Draco and his brother and they go to have a fight. And this is just, I mean, this is how many people are around. I mean, like probably, like probably it's like hard to describe rights. Cause you have like, you have like, I'd say about a hundred yards North. Al Green is performing or just about to go off. So it's like singing like, you know, let's stay together, let's stay together. Right. And then you have this massive parking lot on one side. And then you have like the artist compound on the other side where DJ quick is holding court. You know, it's a really like, like it almost might as well have been like a barbecue. It's night. It's about eight 30 at night, as I mentioned. So it's, it's dark, but it's, you know, bright kind of sodium lights. And, you would think there'd be security there to stop this. I mean, and I think that's what everyone figured. I thought it was honestly going to become a shootout because Draco was known for carrying weapons and like, you know, he, but Draco also wasn't about to not be, you know, if someone challenged him, 
he wasn't going to run away from a challenge. And I think this is also one of the pernicious trends of what social media has done to people because everyone's filming now. And like the fight goes on for five or six minutes. I, I thought it was basically going to be shootouts. So I didn't want to get hit in the crossfire. So I was watching it kind of from like a, like almost like a, like a raised bluff kind of area, just like 10, 15 feet away from it. And the fight basically looks like it ends, which I was like, okay. And I see someone Draco, I, th- I think was limping and somebody, you know, was, I see someone kind of wrapping him like, and I thought it was his bodyguard. And then like a hundred people, mostly wearing red, mostly wearing ski masks, start charging and screaming whoop. And from there, I mean, it was, I said it was an assassination in the article and because that's what it felt like that they, they, they knew they, they were there for one person. No one else got stabbed. You know, no one, I mean, there were, there were minor bruises and wounds from some of the other people that got attacked, but it, it was like almost like a prison style hit, you know, where they had separated Draco and, you know, one of his friends described, I mean, that, that's what several people described it as that were there. And, um, security was nowhere to be found again. And this, and this is going on for like, I mean, this whole thing start to finish. I mean, it had to be 10 minutes, like start to finish at least it could have been 15 and the whole thing. I mean, it, it, it's, it's difficult to talk about cause you know, it, it's infuriating cause it was so preventable and you know, obviously his family is suing and uh, his brother is now suing and um, you know, it was, a, this was a live nation festival uh, with co-promoters. I mean, with, you know, to allow this to happen, is, it's just unconscionable. We'll finish up with Jeff Weiss after a short break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Maximum Fun is a network by and for cool, popular people. But did you know it also has an offering designed to appeal to nerds? A show for nerds? On Maximum Fun? The devil, you say? It's true. It's called The Greatest Generation, and they review episodes of a television program for nerds called Star Trek. They've reviewed TNG, DS9, and are now reviewing Voyager. Hey, Star Trek. My daughter enjoys that program. Well, if she enjoys that, and she enjoys humor of the flatulent variety, might I recommend she subscribe to The Greatest Generation? Hey, are you calling my kid a nerd? Why, I oughta... Well, gotta go. Become a friend of DeSoto by subscribing to The Greatest Generation on MaximumFun.org today. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with writer Jeff Weiss about the life and death of the rapper Draco the Ruler. When I read your description of what happened, I didn't know the details until I read it. And it's one thing to imagine someone smuggling a weapon backstage at a show where they know someone that they want to kill will be. Nobody has weapons because they're backstage at a show. They're hanging out, whatever. The security asks them to leave their guns at the door, whatever, and somebody gets killed. It's another thing to imagine literally dozens, 50 to 100 people wearing gang colors, you know, to say prison style. I mean, it is like, it's a number of people so huge that, it's terrifying to think that that could. And I, I should also add, like, uh, you know, I obviously was not as, I mean, I was close, but I wasn't like, you know, in the melee, but I, I was watching it from a clear view. And actually I, I spoke to someone recently, uh, Drago's funeral, who I didn't even know he was there. 
And he was like, yeah, you described exactly how it happened. And I was really glad about that because, you know, you don't know how like your perception gets really skewed. But what I was told that the people in the melee were also big, you know, it wasn't like they it wasn't like, oh, it was a random altercation. And that's how it was being reported was, oh, an altercation got out of hand backstage and a rapper died. And I'm really sorry. Here's People magazine quoting my LA Times story from four years ago because they just did, you know, and like it that wasn't the case. It was really it went a lot deeper and it's still it'll for the rest of my life. I think it'll always baffle me how security could have been that lax. It it just is it's mind blowing, but it doesn't you know, it, it doesn't bring anyone back. I mean, these lawsuits, I mean, don't bring back the dead they can't bring back draco who was just like a startlingly brilliant talent it just seems like in rap it's 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 like hard it's like just a constant level of like heartbreak something i don't know if you saw it but something that made me feel really sad and angry in the days after uh in the days after draco's killing was a tweet that Snoop Dogg sent. Snoop Dogg had been the name behind this festival. And he had gone from the festival straight to a football game where he appeared during the halftime show. And um, he tweeted like, Snoop Dogg said, I'm saddened by the events that took place last night at the Once Upon a Time in LA Festival. My condolences go out to the family and loved ones of Draco the Ruler. I'm not with anything negative, and as one of many performers, I was there to spread positive vibes only to my city of L.A. Last night, I was in my dressing room when I was informed about the incident and chose to immediately leave the festival grounds. My prayers go out to everyone affected by tragedy. Please take care, love one another, and stay safe. I'm praying for peace and hip-hop. And when I read that, I just thought, look, Snoop Dogg has lawyers. They're telling him what he can and can't say. But I just thought, gosh, I wish that instead of making it clear he wasn't there and that there were a lot of people there and he had left, he could have said, this is something special about the art that this guy made. Yeah. And, and, and like, actually, Snoop, I had a friend of mine who interviewed him and he was talking about Draco and Snoop. I, I, what I was told was like a real fan. Cause Snoop is, I mean, Snoop is the biggest like rap nerd in the world, but it, it's when you see like something like that, it's hard not to think about that. It's hard not to think about everyone just moves on. It's like, you know, you see it now where it's like our brains aren't built for like this kind of world where it's like, okay, there's war in Ukraine. And like, then the next thing it's like, someone's posting some like funny meme or like, Oh, I'm promoting this record that I'm putting out. And like, that's just all it is. It's just like, how can we, you know, monetize this thing? And like it, uh, you like there, and there was no, like, there hasn't been like great journalism that like, even the, the Draco case is a perfect example of it where it's like, I remember when he first went to jail, like no one really cared. No one wanted to pay me to do journalism on like a rapper that they didn't hear about when Draco got out you know, we film like stuff for a documentary. And like, we talked about doing a documentary the whole time. We talked about doing a podcast. I mean, it was like, really like, we're always, we're like, okay, we're going to do this together because like, you know, and you know, we did our like little cursory general talks with people. And most people were like, well, I don't know what the story is. 
<laughs> well, the story is like this, like this heroic underdog that beat like a system that ensnares like hundreds of thousands of black and brown men and, you know, and everyone really like, I mean, there's plenty of people that are wrongly incarcerated, you know, of like for weed crimes, you know, like there's, pl- there's like, I think like 40,000 people still like serving time for weed in America, some, some figure like that. And no one cared. And then of course, you know, he, he then he, when he's gone, it's like, it becomes, and, and that's just all, I understand that's like a natural human element, but yeah, I think the thing that me and Draco said, uh, was like this sort of flawed idealism, not necessarily the sense that you could change anything like, but I think like he in his own art was really committed to kind of being as honest as he could and as like original as he could. And like, just that's why I didn't want to sign with a major label. You know, that's why he didn't want to, he didn't want to do dance songs or whatever. I mean, nothing against people with dance songs. It just wasn't him. And he was never going to be a part of the machine. Not to say that I'm like, will or won't but he he just was dedicated to kind of like keeping like his own personal truth you know there's the truth is obviously subjective but everyone has their own personal truth and i think in the case of draco it was always really like pure jeff you know when i was a kid i was or a young teenager i guess i was present for a murder i didn't see it it happened behind me and I didn't know the person who was killed. You know, it was probably, I don't know, 150 feet from me or something like that. And having had that experience, which was basically hearing some gunshots in a subway station, being on the ground for a little while, and then, you know, the next day seeing some blood on the stairs is something that I is like still part of my life, you know, and that's now 20 five plus years later. And um, I don't know, I guess I'm just asking if you're okay or, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, like when it happened, it was, I was pretty f-ed up for a few. I mean, yeah, it was bad. Like, uh, you know, it's interesting. I was, I was saying this to my friend that day, actually the friend that witnessed the murder with me, where I was saying that trauma is such a, like, it's become such an overused thing in the lexicon of modern, you know? And then like, that happened. I was like, okay, that was trauma, you know? And like, I'm not, I'm not saying that to kind of reduce anyone's experiences. I think trauma comes a lot of ways and I would never kind of cast aspersions on anyone that interpreted it their own way. But yeah, it was, it was bad for, for a while, you know, like, uh, I couldn't like get the idea. I'll never get the image out of my head. That's for sure. You know, him like lying on the ground, like bleeding to death. That'll never go away. And quite honestly, maybe this sounds perverse, but I don't really want it to. I want to remember that because I think, you know, that is important. Like I I want to be able to tell his story or, you know, the truth about his story, however it comes out with him gone. It was really bad for about a month, month and a half. And I'm not saying it's good now, but the funeral the other day um, did offer. I don't really believe in closure like that, nor do I really believe in catharsis like that or silver linings like that. Maybe a little bit, but it made me redouble my desire to keep on telling what happened because um, it'll always like haunt me that this kind of thing could happen to somebody like that special. Well, Jeff, I appreciate you taking this time. I know it wasn't uh, necessarily an easy or pleasant thing to talk about. So um, thanks for taking the time and coming in to talk to me. Oh yeah. Thanks for uh, having me do it. You know, um, I'm glad I could tell it. I have a lot of respect and admiration for what you do. And I thought you, uh, 
he'd be the perfect person to talk to about it. Jeff Weiss. The murder of Draco the ruler remains unsolved three months later. The LAPD has not shared any suspects or arrests. Jeff wrote eloquently about the situation for Los Angeles Magazine. We'll have a link to that piece on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here at my house, we held a welcome party for my daughter's flip phone. She's been asking for a flip phone for a long time. We finally got one. Apparently, the phone company delivers them to your house now uh, so they can sell you stuff. And... uh, My daughter sat on the porch uh, with a sign. It was really something else. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio, Valerie Moffat, and Richard Roby. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation by the group The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team and thanks to Memphis Industries Records for sharing it with us. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find us there and follow us. Uh, We share all our interviews in those places. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR. 